This is Paul Nobles from Eat Reform, and I am here with Dr. Susan Kleiner. This is technically uh, Sunday with Susan, but we might actually release this a little bit early because this is a topic that's sort of in the ether, and I figure um, Susan was going to be a great person to talk about. So if you're not familiar, there's been a lot of information related to um, this controversy with, with Nike, um, and there was an athlete, and Susan will know her name, I do not, um, but her coach, they, they had somewhat of an abusive relationship, um, but what we're really discussing is sort of the diet implication, right? And so I'm going to hand it off to Susan, but, but it was interesting when Susan and I first met, when we first first started talking, one of the things that came up was this idea of female empowerment and, and women lifting weights and, and things of this nature. And we quickly moved to the discussion of we can't really have those discussions without talking about how big of a role dieting plays in for women, right? And so I'm going to hand that over to Susan because she can speak to that a lot better. And I'm going to try and let her just do her thing because at the end of the day, this is a topic that I think many of you out there, whether you're a father, whether you're a mother, you know, you're going to have coaches. And I think Susan's going to make a great case for a lot of coaches doing a great job out there. Um, but you're going to have coaches that are going to be talking to your child about food. And so with that, I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Susan Kleiner and, and just tell them a little bit about why you're qualified to talk about this. Thanks so much, Paul. Well, so, you know, having 35 years in the sports nutrition world, <laughs> uh, a PhD in nutrition and human performance, and having focused specifically um, not solely, but, but having a big focus on the female athlete for probably the last two decades. Um, and the experience in, in working with, uh, in both research and uh, practice with female athletes and male athletes who have a, uh, that weight, body weight, is part of their performance calculation, whether it is because of a uh, weight class that they need to meet or a power to weight ratio that enhances their performance. So the first thing is just to give a little more description on what Paul was talking about. So Mary Kane, who was the fastest female uh, high school runner um, a number of years ago, was recruited to the Nike Oregon Project and the head coach at that time was Alberto Salazar. And a championship runner himself. And the, the abuse that is being talked about is, um, is the, the demand that she reach a certain body weight to enhance her performance um, at any cost. And, um, and, and the language that he used to try and um, push her toward that weight loss um, the um, physical implications of losing her period, the mental health implications of her doing self-harm, 
um, none of that mattered. Uh, it only mattered to get her to her weight until she finally broke down, she left, she stopped running. And now she has, you know, um, been able to become uh, transparent and disclose her story. And it has led to an unloading of stories from female and male athletes all over the place, both uh, associated with the Nike Oregon Project. Um, Sports Illustrated just published a story with interviews with nine athletes from that, that uh, time corroborating Mary's story, but athletes from all over the place um, talking about this kind of coaching. And so what, what are the issues and, and what are the implications both for elite athletes, um, men and women, uh, and, and coaches and parents. Frankly, Mary was 16 years old when she left to go to Oregon. And so my first comment is that while it seems as if her parents were somewhat involved, what I know in coaching in general and the relationship with parents with coaches is often the parents feel like, well, they don't know anything and they defer completely to the coaches and whatever the coach says. And the coaches very often do have an, an image of the helicopter parent, and they don't want the, the parents involved at all. They want direct you know, connection to that athlete without any interference because the parents don't know what they're talking about. And my number one comment is, as a parent, um, to hell with that idea. Your parent, your child is your responsibility. They are yours to protect and to guide. And if you have any concern about any of the coaching or your child comes to you with a concern or being disturbed about anything they're being told to do, go out and talk to other people. Um, find out, talk to other coaches, talk to other parents, talk to your child's physician, pediatrician. I don't care who it is, but definitely stay involved in your child's sporting, you know, um, We're, we lost, um, we've lost, uh, I don't, I don't know what's happening, but we've lost a little bit of audio from you. Um, only a couple, couple seconds though. So we might be able to try to get it back. Can okay. You? Yeah, you're oh. good. No. Yep, you're good. You're frozen. Well, I might be frozen, but I can hear you, so we can keep going. Okay, so if it, I'll just say, if if a coach says get out of the way, that's a warning sign, and and I would, um, I would I would get in the middle of that in a heartbeat. Um, as far as what are the real relationships between body weight and performance? Um, that's highly individualized. Depending on the athlete and the sport, the age of the athlete, the training level of the athlete, the potential elite capacity of the athlete, body weight is, is, is variable. And certain athletes they perform better. Mary's history was she performed much better at, at a higher body weight than the body weight that Coach Salazar wanted her to attain. 
in my personal experience working with swimmers where body weight matters. Um, maybe not quite as much, but it certainly has an influence, uh, especially percent body fat. Um, very often it, it, it's individualized. You test the swimmer and you see what happens with their performance. Um, there's, there's famous stories of athletes totally tanking their performance with a drop in body weight. So, um, so it's highly individualized. It is not general. And so um, coaches know coaching. They do not know sports nutrition. And in Mary's case as well, the supposed experts that were guiding and advising her were not card-carrying nutritionists nor psychologists. And so these are also issues you want to look at. Are the people working with an athlete truly academically trained, credentialed, licensed professionals? So we'll just pause there for a second because I think that that's a good um, jumping off point. I think a lot of people listening to this are going to kind of not personalize it because it's going to seem like we're talking about elite, elite athletes and things of this nature. But we do know that there is a direct connection between eating less, right? And things like depression, um, mental health. Um, and so, you know, the, the one thing that I definitely wanted to, to clarify, and it's been my experience, and I'm sure you've had a multitude of experiences but, you know, in the one instance with the video, she's specifically talking about um, a man and the culture related to men um, and then the culture at Nike. And, and that's been covered ad nauseum. I don't think we really need to cover that, that mm -hmm. part, right? But what I do want to say is that Susan and I both know stories on the other side, right? And um, I do think that what you just said related to card carrying, registered dietitian and things of this nature, it has always shocked me. I remember I was at a conference um, with an NFL wide receiver, right? And uh, we, we went and got lunch and we went to McDonald's and he felt shame related to the fact that, that he eats McDonald's. And I said, look, man, you need to get in 2000 calories, some kind of way. I've been watching you work out for the last five hours. You're the guy working out more than anybody else. So fuel matters. But I think what happens is a lot of people don't equate that. They somehow look at them as, as, different types of human beings than elite athletes. And, and yes, you are, right? But it doesn't mean that, you know, they get to eat a lot of food and you do not. Because one of the first things that, that you know, and you, you talk about it in your book, you know, New Power Eating, that um, immediately when you start working with an athlete, you'll give them a thousand calories to see how they respond. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's really the, the aspect that I really want to focus on here, because, you know, when we look at weight restricted sports and things of this nature, you know, I have two great 
you know, examples where um, I was working with Olympic athletes, future Olympians, things of this nature. And there is this culture within weight restricted sports. Um, so you, you're probably aware of this, but within USA Olympic weightlifting, there's only a certain spot, right? There's only a certain amount of spots that they get. And so they will often take the best lifters and then try and put a square peg in a round hole where they're in the wrong weightlifting division. And if the parents don't speak up in that instance, what ends up happening is, is, you know, the, the way that they used to describe the Bulgarian method was that they would break a hundred eggs to make a three egg omelet. Right. And I think that, that when you try to put a child, right, that we're, we're often talking about 18 to 23 year old children, you try to put a child in a, in, in a place that they're not supposed to be, it could be damaging in a lot of ways. And right. those things do have implications on overall societal type stuff. So I've already, I said I wouldn't talk that much, so I'm going to hand it over and then get your opinion on things like that. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, interesting that you talk, you gave that sort of story about the NFL lineman. My, um, the, the data are so clear about their weight gain um, strategies over their younger years and the damage that it does, even if by the time they're 40 years old, they're out of that dramatic weight gain year after year after year, and then, and then they lose it and they, they attain a, a, a healthy body weight. They, there is true damage to their organs, their blood vessels, their heart. They, they've done damage because of this dramatic weight gain. In the same way, we know that consistent um, large weight losses, weight losses and gains over and over again, year after year after year, even if it stops at some point, does damage to our lifelong health. And so even an elite athlete who diets down, let's say a bodybuilder or as you said, uh, you know, a wrestler, any other weight class athlete, that, um, a, a, a road cyclist, as they diet down for competition season, year in and year out, they are doing damage. It's extreme, um, uh, drastic impacts on, on the cells of your body that your body cannot completely recover from. So when we talk about underfueling, the problem is, and this is kind of a global look at the way people look at exercise and dieting, and this is from general population all the way to elite athletes, is that we view the exercise time as the weight loss opportunity. And that is a huge mistake that, that defeats your purpose before you even start your workout. The point is, if you're going to exercise, you want to maximize the impact of that exercise on all fronts. You want to work out as hard as you can during that time so you get the best training effect to begin with. Whether you're trying to get gains in muscle, whether you're trying to get gains in performance, whether you're trying to burn more calories. If you underfuel, 
that training moment, you may train really hard for the first third of your workout, and then you're coasting for the rest of it. So you don't get the training effect from the full hour of your workout. You only get a third of that. You don't get any gains because the gain comes at the 80 to 100% push, which you never accomplish, and you don't get the calories that you want to burn either. So you're kind of, you're, you're, you're running in place. And people say, exercise doesn't do anything for me. I don't get sculpted. I'm plateaued. I'm yada, yada. You don't use that moment for your weight loss. You use the rest of the day if you need to, to, to drop a few calories and you don't need to drop very much. So there's your, your volume um is is off a little bit but the, it was a perfect time to interject um i we're we're having a little bit of communication issues so we might have to cut this short um but what i was going to say there we go. is that what we see is that when you and this is irrespective of of athletes but but especially as it relates to kind of exercise and susan's topic is with people that have a lot of weight to lose, they'll often, um, well, there's two concepts here. One, and this is consistent with Eat to Perform and consistent with New Power Eating, is that you have to view things from a periodization standpoint. You can't view things as, I need to lose 100 pounds, I'm gonna nuclear bomb myself, and then lose 100 pounds. That nuclear bomb, it causes all kinds of problems, right? And so what we see, and I'm sure, you know, Susan could speak to this, you know, six ways to Sunday on why this is. And, and this was certainly my experience as an obese person is that when eating more, it allowed me to train more, which allowed me to burn more fat mm-hmm. and allowed me to reach my goal faster, so much faster that the periodization part where I under ate was almost nil, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it was literally, I would say some total about six weeks, right? Now, was I at a deficit? Of course I was, right? I was working out a lot. But when you think about the deficit and feeling plateaued and feeling like you're confused and overwhelmed and all the things that people feel related to weight loss, what did I do? I put myself in charge. I put myself in charge with food. And that is the core of Eat to Perform. Now, as someone that, you know, uh, running Eat to Perform is a big job, right? And so I always say, if you're, a, if you're a lawyer, if you're an accountant, if you're, you know, all these things, you're going to have to make a compromise. You're not going to be able to work out three times a day. I don't work out three times a day now. I did at that time though, right? And so I really used food and fuel in that way. And, but, but it's that periodization and viewing things from the standpoint of cycles that when you look at athletes, you would almost never have an athlete on an extreme cut if you did, it would almost certainly be out of season, right? And, you know, that can be tricky. But when you look at these athletes, they have much more incentive than the rest of us do. 
And they also have amazing work capacity, right? And so any type of, you know, um, where you're eating without a lot of awareness, right? Because that would be common, right? You're out on the road, you're traveling, you eat at the steakhouse, just like the rest of your team. And, you know, naturally you could maybe take it too far and not get to the point where things are, you know, kind of managed well. You do see many of the better athletes, your LeBron James, Jimmy Butler's, these types of people that I can think of that have personal chefs now that are controlling many of their meals. They're still eating with extreme volume, right? That's important to note, right? But it's, it's not, kind of an unawareness, sort of the myth of Michael Jordan, right? Was that Michael Jordan could, you know, stay out till 5 a.m. in the morning. Allen Iverson could stay out till 5 a.m. in the morning. And they had all these bad habits and they drank beer and, and they were still great. Um, it almost certainly shortened Allen Iverson's career. And Michael Jordan struggled with that at times, right? Where that type of recovery and things of this nature. The athletes today are so much more aware of the role of sleep and food that it's just amazing. And that does trickle down to us, right? And it does trickle down to your children. And so we try to keep these short, um, but I'm going to let Susan unpacked that last piece that I went. We, like I said, we've had some audio issues, but for the most part, I think we've been able to um, navigate those well. But I want to give Susan the last say because this is a topic that, that literally she's devoted her life to, right? And so to cover it in, in, in 25 minutes is going to be difficult. So the, the, the concept of energy availability, as we go back to kind of the female athlete, and now we know that it also applies to male athletes, that, that, that when you re really restrict your, your fuel, most people used to think that, well, it took care of your body, and then you just had a little bit left over to do your exercise, and so that was fine. Except what we understand now is the body fuels the highest energy demand first. So... So you can do your exercise, you may not do it great, but you can do it, and it will withdraw energy credits from taking care of the foundational needs of the body and everything else slows down. Your immune system you know, will slow way down. Your reproductive system can turn off completely. Your you know, cardiovascular system won't repair. Your central nervous system in your brain will, will be somewhat dysfunctional. We know this and people experience it. They get brain fog. They say, I'm working out harder, I'm eating less, but I'm getting softer. And my performance is in the toilet. My hair is falling out. I can't sleep well. I'm not coping well with stress. All of those are symptoms of low energy availability, not eating enough. And, and in no way does that lead to successful weight loss or successful exercise, or a successful life. And it is this you know, minimization, this very low energy intake that has led to the collapse of female athletes worldwide where they have very short careers because they have been underfueling themselves. And it certainly doesn't help your teenager or yourself when you're restricting so much that you don't have a future. So, 
the goal is a long, happy life, <laughs> as healthy as you can be, and that means that you actually have to eat. Yeah, I, I try to remember how I put it, but the goal of, of dieting um, isn't to be as miserable as possible as long as possible, right? And I think that, you know, what you just said was amazing. You totally crushed that. Um, but what I really need people to hear is that this isn't just about elite athletes, right? Oh, this absolutely is, not. This is about regular people also. And I think that there's many of you that fall into this narrative of what's the most simple and what is the, the thing that, um, certainly the thing that you can do is the most important, but if you always view food as the enemy and never view food as the ally, you know, this isn't to say that you can't eat less on occasion, right? But like as Susan is saying, if your hair's falling out and your nails are, are brittle and, and you're on edge and you're maybe depressed and, and having mental health issues, it's not the good time to be dieting at that point, right? And, and you maybe know, diet that's doing it. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's what, yeah, that's what we're really saying, right? Is that, it, you know, at that point, you know, having a period where you don't diet, I get it. You don't have abs yet, right? I get it. You are not at your optimal weight, but, but you got to stop viewing things with a finite time frame, right? And athletes have this also, right? Um, where, you know, I can't tell you how many times that I'll talk to a CrossFit Games athlete and it's three weeks before the CrossFit Games and they're like, I need to be down 15 pounds. I'm like, call somebody else. Not interested. You know, the, like you have to have a much bigger plan, right? And just because you, you think you would perform better 15 pounds less, you're, you're just going to have less energy. So all right, Susan, that was amazing. I appreciate your thoughts on, because it's, it's something that's really important to people right now. And so we probably won't wait to Sunday to get this one out, but we'll, we'll do Susan's views on grains as the Sunday one, because I've been meaning to get that one out anyway. So I appreciate you being here and taking the time to do this. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Thanks, Paul. All right, bye now.